I'm not sure what to make of this one. It's kind of an average episode. This is neither VHS nor Skip, I think. Written by, uh... Rick Valertz, I'm gonna go with, who has never written anything else. And directed by Tony Leader, who's also never directed anything else. This is, a, this, like I said, this is just kind of a weird one. We do get to see Catherine Woodville, uh, who's a pretty decent actress. She was also in Mission Impossible and Wonder Woman and Days of Our Lives, a bunch of other stuff. They really wanted McCoy to have an episode, and they're like, you know what, let's just let's just do it. Here you go, have an episode. Have a, have a love interest. Okay, cool. Now... So, there's an asteroid, which, uh, excuse me, actually, first there's these missile ships, which are really old and out of date and super easy to deal with. It does show that the ship does have some automated defenses, though. So they go to deal with that. And they find the asteroid ship, which is 10,000 years old, of course. And, okay, that that's cool. They also mention how there's no life forms on the ship. In fact, they, they say that immediately prior to someone coming out of the turbolift to get them. Okay. This is not a good fight. It's the fight of the episode. It's I'm not impressed. My my to to point to a specific example. One of the things I like least about it. There's this bit where Spock is basically doing this and struggling to try and get to his neck to neck pinch him, and he's failing because they're supposed to lose this fight. Okay. Sure. I do want to mention they use some good camera angles in this episode and some good set trickery. I haven't even noticed. In the beginning, there's the elevators that come up, right? The the big cylinders. There's one in the background, which is smaller. Now, if you're looking at that, especially on the remastered edition, it's really obvious that it's literally just a smaller cylinder they put, like, five feet back. But the intent is to try and give the impression of scale. And, and as I've said many times, I'm willing to give a lot of leeway for the severe limitations of budget and tech that they had in this... I almost said game. In this episode, in this series. So... Not too bad, not too shabby. I, w I might have raised it up a little bit, might have helped with the illusion, but other than that, it's good stuff. Either way, so then they are taken down and they find the Oracle, which is of course voiced by James Doohan, because that's pretty much his shtick, as he does the voice actor work. That's not a dig, he's actually quite a good voice actor, and he does some good work, especially as the big, booming voice kind of voice, which I can't do. So Duan says, now that you must learn what it means to be our enemy before you be our friend. For the most part, I thought this was just an irritating da-da-da commercial moment. Because with one exception, it's never referenced again. Not once. Other than the, the one time. So, I, so it is referenced once, to put it more, more clearly. Why is this even here? Like, could you imagine... Notice the this is immediately contrasted by them being treated as honored guests. Being, you know, everyone's amiable and friendly. You're given free reign of everything. You can have food and drink. It's all cool, right? You know, right after we electrocuted you and knocked you out. Why is that in the script? Well, I'll tell you why, but I'll, I want to build up to that a little bit. So then they did argue, what are we going to do about this? Well... We need to inform them that they're on a ship and try to fix the ship's control so it doesn't collide with an inhabited planet, which has three billion people on it. Spock says that's a violation of the Prime Directive, and he's right. Kirk then says, and I quote, The people may be changed by the knowledge, but it's better than exterminating them. Spock's response is logical. Kirk then says, never mind the, the three billion on Denev 5. Denev? Davin, excuse me, Davin 5. 
To which Spock also says, logical. I know this is going to sound like a strange statement, but this is one of my favorite implementations of the Prime Directive in TOS. It's not, it's not like the favorite, but it's one of the better ones. Because they look at the situation, and they don't want to interfere, and they don't want to intervene, and they don't want to get involved, but they have to, because this is, it's off course, because the ship is broken. It has drifted off course, and it's going to collide with the planet and kill billions, or we're going to have to wipe out this ship and kill everyone on board. And both of those are considered unacceptable, because of course they freaking are. So we're interfering. This is my point, and, and I bring this up. I swear this is the last time the PD is going to come up, at least in TOS. At least I think so. I may be wrong about that. Anyways, I bring this up because this is one of the things that I tend to think in the of the PD when it comes to implementation. It's the first check you make, right? It's like you got the list, you got the list, you got your pen here, and it's like okay. So first thing, do not interfere. Okay, but then we check all the other variables. And it's like, okay, so now, okay, we don't want to interfere as a default. Like, the first check is the wrong. It's the default status, right? So default status is don't interfere. Then, having established that, we check the circumstances. Is this a severe, you know, threat to them as a people culturally or medically? And in which case, well, we go into our other branch over here. Is this an existential threat? In which case, we intervene immediately because they're going to be wiped out, which is what they do here and don't do in some other episodes I could mention. And that's my point. Like, it, sh it should be like a, there's a term for that. What do you call that when you have a branching decision-making tree? Like, is this yes, no, and yes goes over here, and no goes over here, right? So that's how I think it is. Default state is prime directive, not interference. But then we check the circumstances and say, okay, should we interfere in this exact circumstance? And honestly, the answer would almost universally be no, if we're thinking about it. Most of the times we see where there's a planetary scale, you know, destruction or something horrible doom is going to happen. I I would like to think those are the exceptions, not the rules. Imagine, if you will, we came upon this asteroid ship and it was just going on course to the to its destination. So it's like, oh, okay. Well, now that we figured everything out, we know where they're going and everything's going to be fine. We could just, you know, talk with them and share, not interfere, you know maybe potentially set up some diplomatic ties so that when they get there and they establish themselves, we could go to, you know, the new planet and be like, hey, remember us? And then you walk away. Now, that doesn't make for good television, but that's my point. The TV episodes are, I think we can all accept this, the exceptions, not the norm, when it comes to the actual in-universe lore of the setting. So, normally, non-interference, cool, and then we just walk away from it, Right. Anyways, I just thought I'd comment on that, because, like I said, I'm pretty sure this is the last time the PD comes up, possibly ever, unless it comes up in Discovery or Lower Decks or Picard or the TAS. I think this is it, as far as the PD, which means I can finally stop talking about it. <sighs> and then a wave of relief. All right, so, they're like, all right, we got to interfere. Okay, cool. Then a crazy old man comes in. <laughs> what? Why is and he shares with them the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. And Kirk's response is the world is hollow, I've touched the sky. So we have ah, we have two roll credits moments right next to each other. That's funny. <laughs> Anyways, so he dies. Okay, cool. Then the episode's actual main plot starts. And that would be the romantic connection between Oh my god, I don't remember her name. 
the woman played by Catherine Woodville. I remember her actor, the actress's name. I just don't remember her name. Oh my God! Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Uh, for the world is all. Let's see. These are all over the place in terms of order, so I'm not sure where an episode is in particular. So forgive me for flipping around here. Anyways, this is when the romance between the two really gets started, which is what I was trying to lead to. The idea that that is the main plot of the episode. Here's the thing. You're probably expecting me to be like, oh my god, oh here it is, it's right here. Natira, that's her name, Natira. Oh yeah, I, just just for the sake of trivia, John Larmer was in the cage. Which means Majel Barrett, John Larmer, and Leonard Nimoy are all in this episode. Which I believe is unique as far as Star Trek episodes. Anyways. So... Natira and McCoy fall in love super fast, right? Wrong. Check this out. I'm actually okay with how they implement it here. Because, well, put bluntly, because this isn't really love at first sight. This is, she's never met someone she's interested in, and he's dying and likes her. That specific circumstance is different than love at first sight. Now, you're probably thinking, Laura, you're awful and terrible. Sure, sure. But my point is that the whole love at first sight thing is usually portrayed really badly by Hollywood, which is why I tend to be so against it. Here, this is more like two safe, sane, consensual people who are interested in each other are like, why don't we try this? Now, she insists in it being a big partnership thing, a big thing. And his response, he even says this, is, we, we don't know any, each other. We're basically strangers. She's like, yeah, what's the problem with that? This is like inverse dating. Hear me out for a second, because I find this fascinating. It's mentioned later that only the high priestess can choose who they mate with, which means the oracle is mandating mating, which means they have a population issue. There is a literal biological need to be having children to maintain the population. That makes sense. There's not that many of them on this ship. And frankly, they're probably trying to manage their resources, because this is a generational ship too, right? So... For various reasons, that does make sense that, culturally speaking, they would have an emphasis on you need to have children. Now, under those circumstances, you don't always have, let's call it what it is, the luxury of being able to be with the one you love in order to maintain the, the existence of the species. Hence why it's such a privilege for the high priestess to choose. But what she posits is what we have is the beginning of a spark. Now, we need to breed, so let's be together as a commitment, and then get to know each other, now that we have already committed to being with each other. Like I said, it's kind of inverse dating, because what they're doing is effectively dating. They have decided to go steady, right? Please tell me, some of you know what that means still. That's still a phrase, right? I'm not out of date, I swear, fellow children, or fellow kids, fellow young people. What's that stupid meme? Anyways, <clears throat> the point is, I'm, I'm hip, I'm cool. No, I'm not, no, I'm not. The point is, this idea makes perfect sense in its own cultural perspective. McCoy is only willing to think about this because not only is he dying from an uncurable disease, I'll get to that in a minute, but he's, well, lonely, and she has a genuine interest in him. It is entirely possible these two people would not actually work out long term. It's possible. Most relationships don't work out long term. How many of those do you think is because they were not committed to actually making that happen? I know I'm treading on some dangerous ground here, but, but I am asking just in a vacuum. I have no agenda here. I have no bias. I'm asking a legitimate question. 
Because what's happening here is these two people are committing to being together. The end. There's no divorce. Now, obviously, that could be seen as a very bad thing because there are some legitimately horrible, toxic relationships. And if you're forced to stick with them, that sucks. But then there's the other cases, which may or may not exist, which is why I gave the theory, the theory earlier on the question I posited to you, of whether or not someone should put forth the effort. Now, the reason I say this is I do believe that at least some relationships would be better if both people involved were willing to put you know, effort into doing it. You know, treated it like it was a serious, real adult responsibility that two people were willing to work for and, and make happen. I mean, if, if this is going to sound like a weird parallel, but think of it like your career. Not your job, which you do for a paycheck. Not your work, which you do because you love it, but your career, which is more of a long-term investment commitment thing, right? You really try and put forth the effort and do the best you can for your career. Why wouldn't you do the same for your relationship, right? Now, to be clear, you notice that there's a difference than just staying together. Staying together and not doing anything is not putting work in, is not actually making the effort. It's just accepting the status quo. This is something I've seen in several relationships and is almost assuredly why some of those relationships, at least part of why they have fallen apart. Because they were just like, no, we're just staying together. We're not divorcing. We're not going to do anything to fix the situation, but we're just going to stay right here. But if they put actual effort in, it is possible, I do not know, obviously, that they might have been able to make something actually work. Which is then, I'm sorry, let's, let's pull this back to the episode, which is exactly what she's offering. You and I commit to this. We're in the long haul, or at least for a year. Let's see how it works. Let's get to know each other and figure out how we can make this work long term. At least that's what she initially mentions. It's not until he mentions that he has a terminal disease that she's like, oh, okay. Now, this is critical. She's still willing to try it. Though it is only a year, she is still willing to bond with this man because she feels there's enough of a spark, that initial, right? That initial emotional or physical connection or attraction. I suppose I should say physical, emotional, and intellectual because all three axes are relevant here. In order to be willing to, to be with him, to commit to this, even if it is only for a year. You could also say there might be some pragmatism there because she might just be able to pick someone else after a year, but that's not what's shown on screen. What's shown on screen is that she is willing to give this a shot and have what they can for a mutually beneficial relationship, a.k.a. a relationship, a romantic relationship. Interesting to think about. And I'm, of course, curious of your guys' thoughts, and I'm looking forward to being shredded in the comments. So... We find out that these people were Fabrini, and this is when the episode gets some points back and then immediately loses me, and I do mean immediately. It gets some points back because I realized the point of that earlier torture session. You remember I brought it up? Well, the point is, the Oracle is the villain of this episode. She is not. So, the episode makes it so that she is reasonable and willing to talk and willing to understand, and the Oracle is not, which makes sense. It's a computer. Not a sentient, sapient computer, just a computer. Computers aren't really reasonable when it comes down to it. They do what they're programmed to do, and that is basically it. So that makes sense. The episode then immediately loses that goodwill from me by having her say, Fools! Do you think we are children that you can do what you wish to us? And she just goes full villain mode for some reason for one scene. And by, by for some reason, I mean because it's right in front of a commercial break. 
The very next scene, she's right back to being reasonable and understandable because the commercial break isn't there and we don't need to, to, to drum up the fake drama. Do you see why this bugs me so much and why I keep bringing it up in TOS? I know that this is endemic in a lot of television, but I'm not covering a lot of television. I'm covering this. And, to quote myself, just because it is normal does not make it acceptable. So forgive me for actually being pissed off, but this is really starting to grind my gears. Dun dun dun! And then we're back. The reason I didn't bring it up all that often in TNG and DS9 is because it didn't happen all that often in TNG and DS9. It did happen. It just wasn't a near-constant thing in almost every episode like it was with TOS. <sighs> so then we have a really weird goodbye. McCoy convinces her to let them go. And it's just, there's, this, this just episode just bounces around tonally really bizarrely. At no point does he think to say, by the way, they're going to have to destroy this ship if we can't fix it. I feel like, you know, death or allow me to violate the sacred texts might be a convincing argument. No one ever tries that with her, you notice. Even Kirk, when he flat out says, you have to listen to me and tries to explain what's going on, still doesn't actually mention that. I suppose it could have been seen as threatening, but, you know, whatever. Either way, Starfleet Command says, we're going to deal with this our way. Of course, none of my fingers snap when I do it on command. Now they're snapping. Oh, sure. Thanks. Thanks, fingers. Thanks for that. Uh, so she can be convinced and the Oracle cannot. And the Oracle then becomes the final threat to overcome. Question. What type of episode is this? You know, we have mystery episodes. We have dilemma episodes. We have thinker episodes. We have threat episodes. Which one do you think it qualifies as? Now, I actually have my answer. I think this is a dilemma episode. It has shades of a threat, but not really. A again, as with most dilemma episodes, the threat isn't really to the crew or the characters or the fact that they're you know, fighting a villain that they must overcome. It's more like they're trying to accomplish a larger goal, and the dilemma is how they accomplish that. How do they work through this? The only reason I hesitate and waffle on this is this is a really easy dilemma to solve, because there's no dilemma, is there? The dilemma is... Do we interfere with the people to save the lives of billions? And the answer is yes, immediately. So there's no dilemma. So what is this episode? Funnily enough, I think the intent is, an, is the one episode type I didn't mention, which I did on purpose, of course. It's a character piece. But it doesn't really feel like a good character piece. Like, I like uh, DeForest Kelly, and I like McCoy, but this just feels like going through the motions rather than actually having any character examination or development for him or his connection to her or anything. It's just, hi, and I love you, and we should try this. And okay, there's some cool ideas there. I don't want to say that there aren't. But then they have the, they have, they must overcome the machine, and then they do. And then McCoy's like, well, I'd love for you to come with me. And it's, it's probably one of the better scenes is when they basically say goodbye. They actually say goodbye between McCoy and whatever her name was, Catherine Woodville's character. She says she has to stay. He says he has to go. He wants her to come with. She wants him to stay. And there's just this whole thing going back and forth. It's a decent moment. And then... <laughs> just like in a Scooby-Doo episode or something. Hey, these super terribly unadvanced people who had pathetic weapons, a pathetic ship, old-style propulsion, you know, all this old, terrible tech happened to have a cure for this exact disease. I myself have posited the idea many times that everyone develops technologically differently, but 
this feels a little ridiculous that they just happened to have the cure for this one disease. And to be perfectly blunt, if the disease was just ejected from the narrative, I'm not sure that the narrative would in any way be altered or suffer for its absence. What do you guys think? Either way, they correct it, and as much as it would be nice for this to follow up at some point in the future, you know how much we hate continuity, I do enjoy the fact that Kirk at least says, you know, they're going to land in about 390 days, and we could be in the area for you to, you know, go say hi. Like something, you know, do something to have the potential of an off-camera follow-through. So that's something. I'm with that. I'm with that. And then the episode ends. And that's all I got. I do hope you guys have enjoyed the longest... I th actually, I think this is the second longest now uh, Trek-titled episode. Because I think there's a Discovery episode that has a longer title. But either way, I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you next time.